This Lord's Day, we continue our series through the Gospel of Mark, and we come to Mark chapter 10. We'll be considering verses 13 through 16. There are many ways in which one might promote the kingdom of Christ, but there is not a more significant way to promote Christ's kingdom than by means of bringing our children to Jesus Christ. Our children are conceived in sin and corrupted from the very moment of conception with Adam's sin. They, like their parents, are by nature the children of God's wrath. The fact that we as parents have infected our own children with the disease of sin and corruption ought to drive us all the more to seek to lead them to the only one who can save them from eternal death, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. We as parents, dear ones, cannot in ourselves save our children. Let us make that perfectly clear. The church cannot save our children. Even the ordinances of the Lord Jesus Christ in and of themselves, those appointed by Christ, cannot save our children. Only Jesus Christ can save our children. But one of the most significant means which Christ ordinarily uses to save our children as Christian parents. Is this truth? That is the important role Christian parents have in bringing their children to Jesus Christ, which the Lord makes very clear to us from our text this Lord's Day in Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. Let us consider then the following main points from our text. First of all, the commendable work of the parents in Mark 10, 13a. That is the first part of the verse in verse 13. Number two, the grievous work of the, of the disciples in Mark 10, 13b. And thirdly, the response of Christ. In Mark 10, verses 14 through 16. First of all, then, the commendable work of the parents. Look with me at Mark 10, 13a. And they brought young children to him that he should touch them. <clears throat> After the Lord had declared in Mark 10, verses 1 through 12, as compared with Matthew 19, verses 1 through 9, that it is not lawful for a man to put away his wife, that is, to divorce his wife for every cause, but for this specific cause it is lawful, namely fornication, it would appear that immediately following these words, some who were present, brought little children unto Christ. Most likely, these were the parents of the little children who brought them to Jesus. It's also significant that both Mark in chapter 10, verse 13, and Matthew in chapter 19, verse 13, use the diminutive form for children, that is, little children or young children, when referring to those who were brought to Jesus. These were not older children, for they were small enough to be taken up into the arms of the Lord, according to Mark 10, verse 16. In fact, Luke, in his account, does not even use the word little children, but becomes even more specific by calling them infants or babies, in Luke 18, 15. Now, note that these infants were brought to Christ for a particularly stated purpose, that he should touch them. 
in Mark 10:13. Now, what type of a touch is in view here? Matthew gives a, a little more information when he explains in Matthew 19:13 that he should put his hands on them and pray. These parents sought Christ to bless their infant children and to pray for them by placing his hands upon these small little children. We see this actually in the Old Testament as well when we note that Jacob is a prophet of God. Likewise, bless the children of Joseph by laying his hands upon their heads in Genesis 48, verse 14. What type of blessings did these parents seek? Were they seeking physical blessings? Well, there's nothing in the context of this passage that would indicate that these children were physically ill, that they were sick and that they were brought to the Lord Jesus for the purpose of healing them. Then it was the spiritual blessings of Christ and his kingdom which these godly parents sought, as we shall see more clearly. It is noteworthy that these believing parents did not view their children as too young to receive the spiritual blessings of Christ, even as infants or babies. Although these little ones were not yet able to articulate words, not yet able to profess their faith in Christ, not yet able to understand the meaning of the outward actions of Christ as he placed his hands upon them and prayed on their behalf. Yet these believing parents believed their little children had a place in Christ's kingdom and they desired his blessing upon them. The action of these parents in bringing their children to Christ was not simply one in which they dedicated their children to the Lord, but one in which they sought Christ's gracious blessing upon their little ones. <clears throat> what the parents here sought, dear ones, for their children from Christ was neither presumptuous that is, they were not doing something they had no warrant from God's word to do. Nor was their action premature. That is, they were not doing something at such a young age which they should have done at a much older age. For as we shall see, the Lord takes these little ones into his arms and blesses them even before they were able to profess their faith in Jesus Christ, as we see in Mark 10:16, What these believing parents did in bringing their little children to Christ, dear ones, was precisely what they should have done. They were seeking to be obedient to God and were seeking the spiritual interests of their little ones. But had they believed their infant children could have no part in Christ's kingdom, they would have had no warrant to bring them to Christ in the first place. Where did they find such a warrant in Scripture to believe that their infant children had an interest in Christ's kingdom? In Genesis chapter 17, verse 7, there we find these words of the Lord God that were spoken unto Abraham. And I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee, and I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. To be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. Just as the Lord promised that he would be Abraham's God, so he promised he would be the God of Abraham's seed. 
There the Lord promised to be the God of not only believing Abraham, but the God of his children as well. And in order to remember that this covenant applied to the infant children of Abraham, who is the father of all who believe, whether Jew or Gentile, there was given the outward sign of circumcision, which the Apostle Paul declares was a sign and seal of the imputed righteousness of God received through justifying faith in Romans 4.11. And this outward sign of circumcision was to be applied not only to Abraham, who could believe and who did believe, but even to the infant males who represented the infant females and who could not yet profess their faith in the Lord for an everlasting covenant. Dear Christian parents, there is no greater blessing which we should desire from the Lord for our children than the free and gracious blessings of Christ to be poured out upon them and upon their souls. We should desire and fervently pray every day that Christ might enlighten their minds, that he might renew their rebellious will, that he might grant to them the faith which they need in order to embrace Jesus Christ as he is offered to them in the gospel. We should not only desire such blessings for our children, but we should actively bring them to Jesus Christ. We should not only want them to come to Christ, but we should do everything within our power to bring them to Jesus Christ for these blessings. To bring them through all of the uh, ordinances which the Lord Jesus Christ has appointed in his word for their blessing. Let us think in terms of some of those ordinances, some of those appointed means which we should be using as, as Christian parents in order to bring our children to the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, not that any of these particular ordinances in and of themselves can save our children, but they are appointed means by which the Lord would have us to bring our children to the Lord Jesus Christ. Fervent prayer, even before their birth, to be praying that the Lord would pour forth his blessings upon them and afterwards as well. Praying not only in our secret time of worship for them, but when we gather in our family worship, praying that the Lord God would show them his rich mercy, that he would give to them a heart for himself, that he would give them true saving faith to embrace Jesus Christ. Water baptism, which I will address in, a, in greater detail in a few minutes, is another one of those appointed means of bringing our children unto Jesus Christ. The reading and explanation of Scripture, with, a, with an emphasis always as we read and explain the Scripture, with an emphasis always upon their need of the Lord Jesus Christ. Always giving them the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ. Always offering unto our children the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, our children should not simply be offered the gospel when they come to hear the sermon preached on each Lord's Day, but they should be offered the gospel every time they hear the Word of God read and explained to them. Whenever we have family worship, they should be continuously hearing this gospel of Christ offered to them. The catechizing of our children in the foundational truths of our faith is another means by which the Lord uses to bring our children unto himself. The faithful worship of God in secret worship with the family and family worship and with the church in public worship. Again, all appointed means which should be used to bring our children to Jesus Christ. 
a sound Christian education, teaching them the foundational truths of, of the Lord, of, of the Lord our God, in the education they receive in every subject, teaching them what God says about that particular subject. Effective discipline within the family. And I emphasize with much love and with much encouragement to our children, not taking away from them the hope of the gospel, not making discipline so harsh that they despair, but always before them encouragement and hope, even when they are disciplined even when they are corrected, even when the rod is used. Always love and encouragement and hope. Not fits of anger, not shouting the top of our voice, not calling our children names, but loving and encouraging them in the ways of the truth. And finally, in helping our children to select a godly spouse in all of the, the means that that involves through courtship, through betrothal or engagement, and ultimately into marriage. Dear parents, if we would bring our children to the Lord for His blessing, we must set an example before them by bringing ourselves first in all of these same ways, unto the Lord for His blessing. We cannot expect our children to desire what we do not desire. We cannot expect our children to hunger and thirst for what we do not hunger and thirst. We cannot expect them to follow in our path if we're headed a different direction from the Lord. Or cannot expect them to follow in God's path if we're headed in a different direction from the Lord. You see, dear ones, our faith, if we would lead our children to the Lord, cannot be dead. It cannot be lifeless. It cannot be cold. <clears throat> we cannot expect our children to have a living faith if ours is dead. If our children see hypocrisy where it is apparent, in our own lives, we are merely going through the outward motions of our own faith. And if that is the case, why should we be surprised to see them as well despise that which we ourselves inwardly despise? Beloved, we must not be deterred. We must not in any way be hindered from such holy desires and prayers and actions for our children by any impediments we might see. Sometimes parents become very discouraged because of the rebellion that they see in their children and they may give up hope of their children's salvation. They may stop praying for them. In other words, we can't allow any impediment to keep us from continuing to pray, to fervently trust the Lord, to put all of our confidence in Him to save our children. We cannot as well allow impediments where it appears that the Lord Himself is not acting as quickly as we would hope He would in bringing faith into the lives of our children and pouring forth His grace into the lives of our children. We cannot allow that to deter us from all holy desires and prayers and actions as well. In that regard, we must be like the Canaanite mother in Matthew 15, verses 21 through 28, where, you'll recall, her daughter was demon-possessed. And she comes to the Lord to seek the Lord's help with regard to her daughter. And she begins to plead with the Lord. The Lord, first of all, doesn't answer. doesn't say a word to her. He finally speaks and says, I've been sent only to 
bring back the lost tribes of the house of Israel. You're a Canaanite. I've not been sent specifically to call you back. That doesn't deter her. She continues to plead. The disciples try to uh, tell the Lord, they, they say to the Lord, Lord, send her away. She's making a nuisance of herself. That doesn't deter her. The Lord says, finally, that the bread, that is for the children, should not be given to the dogs, calling this woman, in effect, a dog. That doesn't deter the woman. She says, Lord, even the crumbs that the children eat fall from the table so that the dogs can partake. This must be, dear ones, the type of faith, the type of perseverance in all holy desires and prayers and actions that we must have for the sake of our children and bring them unto the Lord Jesus Christ. The second main point, the grievous work of the disciples in Mark chapter 10, verse 13b. And his disciples rebuked those that brought them. <clears throat> Whereas the work of the parents was commendable, the work of the disciples was reprehensible. The text states the disciples rebuked those who brought their infant children to Christ. The disciples censured or reproved these believing parents for doing a righteous work. <coughs> disciples again believe they knew what was right for Christ to do in a particular situation. Similar to the times that we find the disciples, for example, in Matthew 15, 23, where they sought to send this woman, this Canaanite woman, away from the Lord. Or when Peter thought he knew what was best in seeking to tell the Lord that he ought not to go to the cross that he ought not to offer his life a ransom for his people. In Mark 8.32, where James and John thought they knew what was best as well, when they said, when the, the city in Samaria did not receive the Lord, shall we call forth fire from heaven to consume the city? They thought they knew what was best in that situation as well. Perhaps the disciples thought that Christ should return to what he was teaching the multitudes before the Pharisees brought up the matter of divorce rather than taking care of these small little children. You see, the disciples may have been sincere in rebuking these believing parents, but they were sincerely wrong in doing so. They had no warrant from Christ <clears throat> to turn these parents and their children away. The Lord then takes the circumstance that we find here with regard to the disciples rebuking these parents and he turns it around to demonstrate the interest that little children do in fact have in Christ's kingdom. <clears throat> you see, the root sin of the disciples at this point was presumption. They exercise presumption and not faith. For you see, presumption has no warrant from God's word, but proceeds according to one's own sincerity, one's own thoughts, or one's own will. <clears throat> However, faith has a divine warrant from God's holy word and proceeds according to the revealed will of God. <clears throat> the presumption of the disciples here, you know, is the very foundation of all exercises of religion that proceed from the mere heart of man rather than from the commandment of God. All of those exercises of religion, which we might call will worship. 
proceed from this particular presumption, thinking that we are wiser than God or that God ought to be pleased with what we offer Him if we are sincere. The believing parents of these little ones had the warrant of God from the Scriptures to bring their children to Christ. The believing disciples had no warrant of God from the Scriptures to rebuke these parents. They sought to prevent these children from receiving the blessing of Christ. Dear ones, whenever we seek to prevent actively or even by our mere negligence prevent the outward ordinances and blessings appointed by Christ for our children, we have sinned grievously, as did the disciples of Christ. The Lord himself despises such sin on our parts as parents, as we shall now see. We come to the third and final point, the response of Christ. And we read from Mark chapter 10, verses 14 through 16. And when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased and said unto them, Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. And he took them up in his arms, put his hands upon them, and blessed them. <clears throat> the Lord actually here <clears throat> responded in three distinct ways, according to our text. He responded in his emotions. He responded in his words, and he responded in his actions. Let's consider each of these responses of the Lord briefly. First of all, Christ responded in his emotions. In Mark 10, 14a, the Lord says, or the word says here, but when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased. The Greek word translated much displeased does not mean that Christ was a little unhappy with his disciples, but rather that he was angry, that he was indignant with what they had done. It's a very strong word that is used here as to the emotion, the affection which the Lord had within him in regard to to the action of the disciples in rebuking these parents for bringing them to Christ. This is a righteous indignation on the part of Christ wherein he demonstrates how his whole being is repulsed by those who would prevent little children from being brought to him that he might bless them through all the appointed means which he has ordained. If Christ was indignant, dear ones, we too ought to be indignant when these little ones are prevented by either we as parents or by ministers from receiving the blessings of Christ. And this is why we in this congregation do line out the psalms for our children in public worship because they have a right to sing even as little children. They have a right to sing the praises of God as little children. And we will not prevent them from singing just because they can't read. If they can, in fact, sing along with us, we will slow down the process. We will read a line so that they can join us in the praises of God. Christ not only responded in his emotions, but he responded in his words. When the Lord said, 
Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. The Lord here rebukes the disciples with both a command and a prohibition. The command of the Lord is literally this. Suffer or permit the little children to continue to come to me. The emphasis here would seem to be upon the continuity of their coming to Christ. Past, present, and future. To continuously come unto him. The prohibition, on the other hand, of the Lord is literally this. Stop hindering them from coming to me. Stop preventing them from coming to me. Thus, we are to positively, as parents, do everything within our power to bring our children to the Lord. And we are to discontinue doing anything that would hinder our children from coming to the Lord. I ask you, dear ones, might not our anger with the boss, which we bring home and which we vent on our family, might that not be something that could in some way hinder our children from coming to the Lord? If it is, then we ought not to express that anger in a way that would hinder our children from coming to the Lord. Might not uh, a fight between husband and wife, a quarrel that continues on, unforgiveness in the family, might those not also be things that would prevent our children from coming to the Lord? Might not our continual, continual bickering with one another, putting one another down, might that not also hinder our children from coming to the Lord? Well, if it is, and I, I do suggest to you that those are things that might hinder our children from coming to the Lord. Not that they will necessarily do so, but they certainly might hinder our children as they see in our lives an inconsistency, which they may judge as a hypocrisy. That we ought to cease and desist from all those things by God's grace that would hinder our children from coming to the Lord. See, here's another incentive. Certainly, we want to put away these things. We want to mortify the flesh because it pleases the Lord, because it is profitable to us spiritually to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord. But we also have a further motivation given to us by the Lord here. We do not want to hinder our own children from coming to the Lord. The Lord then gives the reason why the disciples are to permit the little children to continue to come to him and why they must stop hindering them from coming to Christ. <clears throat> For of such is the kingdom of God. The reason they are to stop hindering and preventing these children from coming to Christ is because of such is the kingdom of God. According to Mark 10:14. Literally the Lord said, "For of such ones is the kingdom of God." <clears throat> that is of such little children, yea, even infants is the kingdom of God. Now, some have objected that the words of such really mean of such like these or of such resembling these. That is, those who have childlike qualities. Theirs is the kingdom of God. Well, it's certainly true that those who have those types of qualities, as we will see in the next verse, the Lord makes that application in verse 15. 
But that is not what he is saying in this particular verse. And that cannot be the case for two reasons. First of all, the Greek word used here in our text has a little bit of grammar, has the definite article the in front of it. Now, without the definite article the, it does indeed, this particular word, if it didn't have the definite article the, it does have then an adjectival or descriptive use in which it would refer to childlike qualities rather than to the children themselves. However, when the article is used before this word, the word, the article the, it refers not to the qualities of the children, but rather to the children themselves. In other words, the Lord is saying, for of such ones as these infants is the kingdom of God. The Lord was clearly declaring that his kingdom belonged to not only adults who could believe, but to infants who could not yet profess faith in Jesus Christ. But there's another reason why these words of such, the, the, the two words of such in verse 14, do not refer to the qualities of a child, but to the children themselves. The words of the Lord here must refer not to those who resemble children in certain respects, but to the little children themselves, for it would make nonsense of the passage. Little children here are brought to Christ that he might bless them, that he might place his hands upon them, that he might pray for them. And Christ, according to the interpretation of some is made to say, Suffer little children to come to me, that I may lay my hands on them and pray for them, because the kingdom of God is composed of persons who, in some respects, resemble them. You see, it makes nonsense of the passage to teach that Jesus is talking about in that verse, in that phrase, those who resemble little children. You see, the word for, for, in verse 14, for of such is the kingdom of God. The word for gives the reason for Christ's command and prohibition, which command and prohibition address little children, not those who resemble little children. To what does the kingdom of God here refer? Or the kingdom of heaven, as is used in Matthew 19.14? Well, it speaks of the kingdom over which the Lord rules. It speaks of his church. Whether the church militant that's here upon the earth, or the church triumphant, which is in heaven, As we consider the many usages of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, it either refers to one or the other. Whether in Matthew 13, the various kingdom parables which the Lord gave with regard to the the propagation of the gospel and how it falls on different types of soil, or how he speaks about the kingdom of God and its growth, in some of the parables, it's speaking of, of the church of Jesus Christ. In Mark 9.1, there was given, you'll recall, the, uh, this particular glorious manifestation of the Lord there upon uh, the Mount of Transfiguration. But previous to that, in Mark 9.1, the Lord said, there are some here who will not die before seeing the kingdom of God come in its glory. Again, this is a a manifestation of Christ's kingdom, of his church, in a particularly glorious way. 
Not something in the Old Testament, something presently as well. The apostles continuously in the book of Acts go forth preaching the kingdom of God. Preaching the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God. It pertains to our present mission in establishing the church of Jesus Christ. In Romans 14, 17, the Apostle Paul there speaks with regard to the kingdom of God by saying, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, there are certain people who habitually practice certain sins, evident the fact that they are not Christians. He says they cannot inherit, they cannot enter into the kingdom of God. <clears throat> and in 2 Thessalonians 1, 5, The Apostle Paul says, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which ye also suffer. You see, the kingdom of God pertains to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the church of Jesus Christ. Thus, Christ teaches that even little infants may be members of the kingdom of God, which is the church. Of Jesus Christ. Even little babies can be members. And if members, then they are entitled to the sign of that membership, namely baptism. Let me propose the following propositions to you, which if the major and minor premise, that is, the first two propositions are true, then the conclusion must follow. The first proposition, major premise, all visible members of Christ's kingdom are to receive the sign of membership into that kingdom, namely baptism. All visible members of Christ's kingdom are to receive the sign of membership into that kingdom, namely water baptism. The second proposition, the minor premise, the infants of believing parents are visible members of Christ's kingdom, according to the text which we just have read in Mark 10, 14. The infants of believing parents Parents are visible members of Christ's kingdom. Therefore, this is the conclusion, the infants of believing parents ought to receive the sign of membership into that kingdom, namely water baptism. What may be objected from this passage, where is the water mentioned in this particular passage? Well, granted, there is no water mentioned. There's no water stated here. But the very basis for, for receiving baptism, membership in the church of Jesus Christ, is stated to be the case. Therefore, the sign of that membership follows. The Lord then in Mark 10:15 makes application to all young people and adults who would be members of the kingdom of God. That is, those who would be members of Christ's church. Those who are of a more mature capacity and have the ability to profess faith in Jesus Christ, they must receive the kingdom of God, like these little children. They must receive the kingdom of God like these little children. How is that? How is that kingdom received then? 
I would suggest and propose to you that it's received in absolute dependence upon Christ. As little children receive freely what they need from their father or from their mother, so must those who are of a capacity to profess their faith in Christ. Their faith must be that of an emptying and a receiving nature, not that of a working and a striving nature. Not of a faith that is looking for inward qualifications or outward qualifications, but simply looking to Jesus Christ who is all-sufficient. And saying that He who is faithful, He who has promised, I believe will give to me these stated blessings when I receive Him. And his free gift of salvation. They must recognize that the kingdom of God is offered by God's free grace. And just as the little child merely receives, either by putting out his hand or merely opening his mouth, what is offered to him, so we must be like a little child in receiving the free gift of salvation. We've seen that the Lord responded in his emotions. He responded to the disciples and the rebuke of these parents in his words. And Finally, the Lord responded by his actions in Mark 10:16, And he took them up in his arms, put his hands upon them, and blessed them. <clears throat> the Lord did answer the desire and the request of these parents. The Lord heard their petition. That is not to say that these children would not have been refused the blessings of Christ had their parents necessarily not brought them. God can work either by means or without means. But in this particular text, the Lord makes abundantly clear it was by means of the parents bringing their children to Christ. It was through those means that he placed his hands upon them and blessed them and prayed for them. Dear ones, we are encouraged from the text which we have considered today to bring our children to Christ for they are members of his kingdom. And we are encouraged to receive ourselves the kingdom of Christ as freely, freely as does that little child receive from us its nourishment and its life. So we are to look to the Lord Jesus for everything that we need in this life. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do praise Thee and thank Thee for teaching us so clearly from Thy Word today as to our own responsibility and privilege as parents to bring our children to the Lord Jesus Christ. Thou hast taught us as well this day that our children have an interest in the kingdom of Christ. Thou hast taught us, O Lord, to become like little children in receiving the kingdom of Christ. O Lord our God, let these truths be burned into our hearts. Let us not soon forget. Let us not be hearers of the word, but let us also be doers of the word. We ask our Father that Thou would send us forth this day rejoicing, 
that we have all we need in Jesus Christ. We thank Thee, our Lord and our God, for the free gift of eternal salvation which is offered to us in the gospel. May, O Lord our God, our children, each and every one of our children within the congregation, may each one receive, O Father, this free gift of salvation. Lord, let none of us hinder our children. Let none of us as members of this congregation hinder our children from coming to Christ. We pray, Heavenly Father, that Thou, in Thy goodness, in Thy mercy, would bestow these gifts upon our children for Christ's sake. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.